Amen. Let's go to the word in prayer. Father, we approach your word this morning eager and expectant that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, feed our faith, nourish our souls with the truth. We ask that as we've sung words this morning of worship, that that heart of adoration and gratitude and dependency would now continue as we open the word. We come prayerfully, Lord, to receive all that you would show us. Renew our minds this morning that we might know you and love you and take you at your word. We pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. We continue our series through the book of Exodus and specifically through the Ten Commandments, coming today to the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is brief. There is no comment given on it. There's no basis. There's no explanation. In fact, in the Hebrew text, it's only two words. And in the English translation I'm reading from this morning, it says this, you shall not murder. In 2020, the number of homicides committed in the United States skyrocketed. It's actually been somewhat of an unprecedented increase, something like we haven't seen in a long, long time. There's about a 30% increase in the murder rate as compared to 2019. It was an increase of about 4,000 homicides. There's no shortage of supposed experts who are scrambling around right now trying to give some sort of explanation for why this is. Some people blame guns. Other people blame the pandemic, isolation, increasing hostility and fear. Some people pin this on increased criminal boldness because a lot of police forces have withdrawn and stood down because of riots and different things going on. Some people might try to explain this number of increased murders by pointing to a sort of cultural desensitization that's taken place. I read a stat this week that said most kids by the age of 18 will witness more than 80,000 murders on the screen, whether it's movies or TV or video games. And whether that's cause or symptom or effect, people argue back and forth. You know, there's a lot of different factors that may or may not impact the fluctuating rate of murders in any given society. But the one constant factor is the human condition. Murder is a problem in every society. And listen, it always has been. It's one of the oldest sins. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. We read this tragic story of Cain killing his brother Abel. The second generation after Adam and Eve. And as we read the biblical story, we really see the body count pile up. We read about Nimrod bragging for killing a man, for wounding him, and a young man for insulting him. We see wicked kings. We see murder and intrigue in so many different levels of society. Even the righteous King David, we learn, is responsible for the wrongful death of a man named Uriah, whose wife he took. And ultimately, Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament is murdered. The victim of enraged religious leaders and calloused Roman officials. But the sinfulness of murder, as common as it may be, is made clear here in God's law. And while the prohibition seems simple, don't murder, 
right? How much explanation does it really take? There are actually some important questions that we need to address when we consider the implications for this commandment. What does it mean to murder? What falls into that category? How should this impact Christian ethics? And for us, is it enough to simply avoid bad behavior? How does this commandment actually speak to the human heart? These are questions I hope to address as we look at really two principles I'd like to draw from this sixth commandment. The first principle is this. Obeying the sixth commandment requires upholding the sanctity of life. Obeying this sixth commandment requires that we uphold the sanctity of human life. I mentioned before in the Hebrew text, it's only two words. There's the permanent negative. Don't ever do this. This one little particle. And then there's the verb here that's translated in the ESV as murder. Never murder. Murder is the wrongful taking of life. And again, it's interesting here. There's no reason given. There's no explanation. There's no basis. The simple intro to the Ten Commandments is sufficient. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. That's all the explanation needed. God is God, and this is what he says. And there's no exceptions to this rule. There's no conditions given. This is a blanket statement that applies to everyone across the board. It applies to those who are poor as much as to those who are rich. It protects men as well as women. It protects the young as well as the old. This prohibition applies to those who belong to your tribe, to those who are ethnically like you, and it applies to those who are different. It's a universal command. And you would think everyone would agree with this commandment, right? Like how, how this is common sense. Do we really need a 45-minute sermon on don't murder anyone? Well, yes, we do. Because even those who decry murder in the streets often fail to recognize that this commandment goes beyond simple homicide. I asked the question already, to what does this commandment apply? Let me give you a list. This commandment prohibits abortion. To kill a human being for personal reasons, whether it be fear, whether it be economic pressure, whether it be regret or simple convenience, Scripture condemns it as wrong, as sin. In 2020, abortion was the leading cause of death in the world, over 42 million. Multiple times that of cancer or other such things. But just because something is legal, just because something is socially accepted, just because something is common, it does not make it right. And you might be getting a little bit uncomfortable right now saying, J.D., you're starting to talk about politics, and I came to church today to hear about Scripture. But listen, while the world wants to make abortion a matter of politics, Scripture treats abortion as a matter of our moral obligation to God. While some will say, my body, my choice, God says, my world, my will. Abortion is not health care. It is not reproductive rights. It's a gross violation of God's law. And while some try to make this a complex debate, Scripture addresses this entire issue with two words, never murder. Not only is abortion prohibited by the sixth commandment, but so also is suicide. As we read Scripture, there's five instances of suicide in the Bible, including the tragic end of Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus to death. And in every case where we find suicide portrayed in the Bible, these actions are always in the context of defeat. It's always shown to be shameful. 
It's never upheld as noble. It's never dignified. It's never brave. And when others in scripture ask God to end their lives, we find righteous men like Job and Elijah and even the wayward prophet Jonah saying, God, I wish I was dead. Take my life. God never obliges. He never goes along with that request. Suicide is never shown in scripture to be permissible or within the moral will of God. While it is tragic, it is still sin. God never authorizes us to end our own lives. It's a clear violation of his law. Never murder. And this includes the sin of self-murder. And this would apply in addition to what we would call physician-assisted suicide. And this gets a little bit murky for some people because we've been so conditioned by our culture and our culture holds up really one primary moral measuring stick to make lots of decisions about lots of things. And that's the measuring stick of consent. For instance, certain sorts of sexual activity are wrong because there's not consent. But as long as there's consent, then everything is okay. That's the logic of our world. And they take this logic of consent and apply it to issues of life and death. And they say, well, this is okay because there's consent with physician-assisted suicide, or at least that's how it usually starts. But listen, the consent that matters when it comes to death is not your consent. It's God's consent. And God does not consent to suicide. He prohibits murder, including self-murder in all its forms. This would apply by extension to euthanasia. Sadly, there are many who would see that some lives are less worth living than others. And even if that person wants to keep on keeping on, they're too much of a drain on society. It costs too much money. Their contribution is minimal or negative. So we should just end their lives. But listen, we do not determine the value of human life. God does. And it is wrong for us to end someone's life simply because we think they are no longer of any quote-unquote use to society. We are not to make such decisions because caring for people in their illness and in their age can become a financial burden. No, we are never authorized to push those who are struggling off the cliff. So yes, murder is wrong, but this concept of murder applies to abortion and suicide and euthanasia and such things. You say, why? Why is murder wrong? Well, we're not told why necessarily in this text, but scripture does speak to this question. And scripture gives us a God-centered reason for the prohibition of murder. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Listen, this is the basis for the prohibition on murder. This is what gives intrinsic value to each and every human life, no matter if they're wanted or they're small or they're needy. Murder is an attack on the image of God, an image that is born by every human being. This means that murder is defacing God's property. It's vandalism of God's artwork. Murder, abortion, suicide, euthanasia is really attempted violence against God himself. So murder is not just a sin against our fellow creature. It is a sin against the creator. And it's not just defacing an icon that bears his image, although it is that, but in addition To wrongfully kill a human being usurps an authority that does not belong to us. It usurps the authority of God. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, 
God says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Listen, life and death is God's job, and it is his decision to make. God is sovereign over life and death, over our beginning and our end. Psalm 139, verse 16, the psalmist writes, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God plans out our days. God determines our end. And when we wrongfully kill another human being, we are stealing God's job. Murder is a refusal to wait for God's vengeance, for God's judgment. Suicide is a rebellion against God's timing for our death. It's demanding to be sovereign over our own end. Euthanasia and abortion is sinful man making a decision about who should or should not live when that's God's job description. That decision does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. We don't get to make that call. This God-centered basis for prohibiting murder is really better than anything that the world has to offer. If you go out on the street corner down on Mass Street and say murder is wrong, you probably won't get very many people disagreeing with you. But they'll have different reasons. And these are often weak reasons. Our society has very weak moral instincts. Many people say, well, of course it's wrong. You ask them why, they'll say, well, it's, it's just wrong. Everybody knows that. You talk to others, they will make a utilitarian argument. They will say, well, it's really best for society and the human race if we don't go around killing each other all the time. Both of those arguments are true, but what happens when a fickle society changes its view of what's just wrong? There's no anchor grounding that conviction. What happens when people begin to argue that it would be better for society or the human race if you or your family or your social class, or your ethnicity didn't exist. We've seen those sorts of things happen in history. We need an eternal and unchanging foundation for the preservation of human life. And God gives it to us in his word. And we are to uphold the sanctity of human life because humans are made in God's image and he is sovereign over life and death. It's not our decision to make. But this does bring up some questions and we need to clarify. So if the commandment does apply to murder and abortion and suicide and euthanasia, what does this commandment not prohibit? Because there's other ends that people meet. The reality is God does authorize us to take human life in certain situations. I, I think we've, as much as the King James Version is a literary classic and is a beautiful translation, it translates this this verse in a way that's not very helpful. Many of you grew up memorizing the King James and it says, thou shalt not, what? Kill. Thou shalt not kill. But I don't think this is the clearest translation. There's actually eight different words in the Hebrew language for kill. And the word that's used here in the sixth commandment refers to a specific type of killing. It, it prohibits the unauthorized taking of a life, putting someone to death for selfish, sinful, improper, unsanctioned reasons. It's interesting, this word that's used here in Exodus chapter 20 is never used to describe the killing of animals, whether it be for food or for sacrifice or other things. 
This word is never used to describe killing in the context of a military battle. Killing in the context of war is not murder. And it's not used to describe the execution of criminals. Capital punishment is not being described here by this word. And this is important because there are certain instances where God does authorize the taking of a human life. Again, so upholding the sanctity of life, we do that because man is made in the image of God, but it's also our response to the authority of God. He says, you don't have the authority to decide when someone dies, but I do have the authority to decide when someone dies. And sometimes God delegates that authority to mankind. So just a couple clarifying statements. The sixth commandment does not prohibit self-defense. Next is chapter 22, verse 2. It says, this is just a few pages over from our passage. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. The same law that prohibits murder tells us that it is permissible to defend life and property. The one who dies while committing a crime against another has chosen to pay that price. And while this end is tragic and undesirable and we should avoid it at all costs, it is not murder. And it does not violate the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment likewise does not prohibit capital punishment. In fact, God's law prescribes capital punishment for Old Testament Israel in cases of crimes that are committed against persons. It's interesting, there's never the death penalty prescribed for crimes against property. There's always restitution made in those cases. But crimes against persons, violence done to persons, bears the death penalty. Exodus chapter 21, you can look at this on the next page. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. There's there's a, different, a distinction being made here between manslaughter and premeditated murder. But verse 14 clarifies, But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. God prescribes the death penalty in certain cases. And this, this commandment, this, this instruction towards capital punishment finds its roots in an older commandment. Not one that was given just to Israel. Not one that's only part of this old covenant law, a commandment that was given to the human race at large. When Noah stepped off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, Genesis 9.5 says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. God even holds animals accountable. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Some people will protest this and say capital punishment should be abandoned. Because two wrongs does not make a right. And executing a criminal doesn't bring back the victim from the dead. But this really misses the point of God's law. Capital punishment is described not despite the value of a human life but expressly because of the value of human life. Capital punishment shows the high value that God places on a human life by giving the most severe punishment for destroying it. In fact, there was no penalty or fine short of death that was appropriate for cases of murder in the Old Testament. In Numbers 35, it expressly forbids paying some sort of fine, a ransom, 
to escape the death penalty. Numbers 35, 31, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Why can't you accept a ransom? Why can't there be some sort of fine or penalty? Listen, you can't put a price on human life. And capital punishment actually acknowledges this. It acknowledges the value of life by rendering an appropriate justice. And by doing so, it deters others from committing such crimes in the future. Although we are no longer under the Old Testament law, we are not Israel, we're not living in this Old Covenant situation, this authority to execute justice that God possesses does belong today to the state. It's been delegated to the civil government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Listen, the authority to execute justice, even capital punishment, has been granted by God to the civil authorities. They bear the sword, and they do not bear it in vain. Think about swords. Swords are not for rehabilitation. Swords are not for a minor slap on the wrist. Swords are for execution. The state, as imperfect as it is, does possess authority from God to punish evil, and this includes capital punishment. So the sixth commandment, this prohibition of murder, is not prohibiting capital punishment. To continue on, another clarification we need to make, the sixth commandment also does not prohibit just war. And again, we see this in Scripture. The conquest of Canaan was a war, a ground war against all the different city-states that lived in that land. And it was commanded, sanctioned, authorized by God. Just like with capital punishment, though we we are not called to some sort of holy war today, But the state does have the authority to declare and wage war when that war is in line with principles of biblical justice. And you say, how do we know this is true? Well, Romans 13 authorizes the state to bear the sword. And in addition, in the New Testament, Jesus actually speaks to soldiers. He talks to those who serve in the Roman army. And as they come to Jesus and they believe his message, Jesus does not call them to renounce their position. He does not call them to resign. He does not tell them not to follow orders. He rather tells them to fulfill their duties ethically. In Luke chapter 3, 14, it says, Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? What shall we do? Now, if Jesus was a pacifist, this would be the perfect opportunity to make that point to these men. But Jesus says to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. And that's what he says. He says, don't be corrupt. But he doesn't tell them that their faithfulness to him, their discipleship and following Christ means that they cannot serve in the military. So 
to sum up when we act in self-defense or when the state punishes evil or when we engage in just war, we are not violating the sixth commandment. Killing in these circumstances, while always tragic, has been sanctioned and authorized by God. It is the wrongful death. It is the selfish, improper, sinful, personal killing of another human being that is prohibited by this command. And murder is really a good translation. You shall not murder. You know, ironically, there are many today who want to end capital punishment, who want to criminalize self-defense, and who condemn those who fight in our wars. But often these same people will celebrate abortion. They will defend assisted suicide. They see euthanasia as valid and perhaps necessary. Friends, this is backwards. It's backwards. As those who fear God and believe his word, we need to maintain a biblical ethic, one that values human life as made in the image of God, but one that also recognizes God's authority. Listen, we must refuse to allow the culture to define our moral obligations. We need to let scripture define our moral obligations. We need to recognize the binding authority of God's word. When we try to answer questions about life and death, right and wrong, we go to the word and we receive what God tells us. So obeying the sixth commandment requires upholding the sanctity of human life. But there's a second principle that we need to talk about this morning. Obeying the sixth commandment, commandment also requires confronting the roots of this sin in our heart. It requires confronting the roots of sin in the heart. Listen, if looks could kill, some of us in here today would be serial killers, wouldn't we? If words, if words were bullets... Some of us would be mass shooters. You might not have ever physically pulled the trigger or caused the death of another person. But scripture teaches us that God's will, his moral will for us is not just that our hands do no violence. His will is also that our hearts would harbor no anger or hatred towards those who are made in the image of God. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament as Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount. And he says something that applies directly to this commandment. He quotes this commandment. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Then he quotes Another passage, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is it that Jesus is saying to us? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said... But I say to you. Now I want to make clear, Jesus is not raising the bar of God's law. In fact, Leviticus 19 prohibits hating your brother. So Jesus isn't saying anything new, but he's connecting these things together and raising the bar, not of God's law, but raising the bar of our understanding and application of the sixth commandment. You see, the people Jesus was speaking to had a deficient understanding of God's law a deficient interpretation, and therefore a very shallow application. 
as long as I don't kill anybody, I'm okay. Jesus says, let me explain that to you more deeply and tell you the implications of this commandment for the heart. As the authoritative interpreter of God's law, Jesus says, listen, this commandment goes a lot deeper than just not killing people. It implies that we must deal with the motives for murder that reside in our heart. Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says your problem is not just that you do wrong things. The problem is that you think and desire and feel wrong things. That's where it all starts. That's where all these sins come from. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen, a vigorous opposition of murder and a robust application of the sixth commandment means that we cannot and must not tolerate the seeds of sin in the heart. Paul instructs believers in Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That is our duty. As followers of Christ, as those who seek to live for God and please him, we cannot tolerate those sorts of sins. We must seek to put them away, to make war against them, to put them to death, to do violence to the sin that remains within us. Believers, instead of being angry and bitter and hateful, are called to forgive. Jesus tells us to love, even to love our enemies, and to trust judgment to God, to not take vengeance into our own hands. Listen, there is a judgment that is coming for those who violate the sixth commandment. There's no such thing as the perfect murder because God sees it all. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 9, God says, For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Psalm 9, verse 12 says, He who avenges blood is mindful of them, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. It's talking about God. The one who heard the blood of Abel crying out from the ground sees every murder today. And he's keeping track. Isaiah 26 verse 21 says, Behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and it will no more cover its slain. There is a judgment coming for those who commit murder. But there's also a judgment coming for those who tolerate murderous motives in the heart. In Galatians chapter 5, 19, Paul writes that the works of the flesh, those things that are contrary to God and opposite of his will, those works of the flesh are evident. And it gives us a long list. And included in that list is enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, 
And Paul writes, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, if those kinds of sins are constantly at work within us, if they rule us, if we are enslaved to them, if there is no growth in grace, no willingness to repent and lay these sins aside, then Paul says the implication is that the Spirit of God is not present in you. You are still separated from God. You do not belong to his kingdom. You are lost. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The future for this kind of person, the person who hates his brother, the person who is ruled by anger, the person who does not submit to God and repent of sin, the future for this kind of person is not eternal life. It is rather judgment. Revelation 21.8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what hope is there for those who have not kept this commandment? What hope is there for the angry, for the hateful? What hope is there for those among us who perhaps have chosen abortion, even for some who might be guilty of homicide? The same scripture that warns us of a coming judgment also extends to us a promise of grace. There is hope in Christ. God's grace extends to sinners, to those of us who break his law, which is all of us. And God's grace even extends to those who have broken the sixth commandment, whether they've done that explicitly by, by committing murder or whether they have failed to live up to the implications of this commandment for the heart. God's grace extends to us in Christ. Scripture tells us of two men, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, who are guilty of violating the sixth commandment. We mentioned King David, who had Uriah killed for wrong reasons. The Apostle Paul, likewise, in the New Testament, was complicit in the murder of Stephen. He persecuted the church of God and had blood on his hands. Yet God offered these two men cleansing and forgiveness. David writes in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Go read Psalm 51 and consider how David came face to face with the reality of his own sin. He confessed his sin to the Lord, renounced it, asking for God's mercy, and God restored him. Likewise, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. The good news for those who have violated the sixth commandment is that God took this specific sin, murder, and he used it to accomplish our salvation in the murder of his own son, Jesus Christ. 
through the death of Jesus, those who have broken the sixth commandment can be saved. And those who are saved, who struggle with ongoing remaining sin, we have hope of ongoing forgiveness and cleansing and ongoing help. Grace not only cleanses us, it also enables us to put sin aside. Just as God has shown grace to David and to Paul, he offers it to you this morning. If you will humble yourself and confess your sin, he promises forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. So humble yourself before him today. Repent of your sin, whether it's the slightest thought of anger or whether it's literally the murder of another human being. God promises us in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, the solution to your guilt, the solution to your shame, the solution to your sin this morning is not to excuse it, not to justify it, not to redefine it. Likewise, the solution is not to somehow make up for it because you can't. The solution is to come to the cross and to receive the mercy and grace of God that he offers us in Christ. Listen, there's some in the room here today who have been touched by this sin. We know people who have committed suicide, perhaps family. Abortion is a reality. There's those here today who struggle with anger and bitterness. So this command speaks to us. It tells us what God demands. It tells us what is right and wrong. But God also offers us today cleansing and hope, comfort and restoration that the gospel is sufficient. The cross is big enough to deal with murder and suicide and abortion and anger and bitterness. So let's look to Christ today. Let's acknowledge the truthfulness of his word and trust in the sufficiency of his promise. Father, your word is clear. It's sometimes hard for us because we live in a world that distorts your truth and we possess a heart that is prone, as we sang this morning, prone to wander. We feel that. God, I ask that you would help us to uphold your law, to obey it. Obedience is not legalism. It's worship. Help us to worship you with our lives by obeying your commands. Help us to love you by keeping your commandments. And God, for those who are feeling the weight of sin and guilt and regret, I pray that today they would look to the cross and recognize that there is room for sinners at the cross. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not our failures, not our sins, not the sins of others against us. Your grace triumphs over sin. Your light overcomes the darkness. We thank you for the gospel, for the comfort it gives us. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts today. And Lord, if there's any who don't know you, who are still dead in their sins, who are still lost and separated from you, I pray that through the preaching of your law this morning, you would point them to your son, Jesus Christ, that the gospel would be received as good news in light of our own guilt and need. We pray that you would magnify yourself and your glory this morning today. And Lord, conform our lives, conform our thinking, conform even our emotions to the truth that you have revealed in your will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.